We have to stop thinking in terms of growth and we don't have to beautify growth by calling it green, inclusive. Growth is a problem. This idea of compound rating of growth is a problem. What the growth signifies is that we have to to liberate ourselves from uh, this ideology and one-way thinking of economic growth and then consider the alternatives that right now they are not considered. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Today, I'm joined by Yorgos Kalis, an ecological economist and professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Catalan Institute for Research and Advanced Studies. Yorgos has worked on diverse topics over the years, including water policy, climate change, limits to growth, and conflicts over resource use. His current work explores the hypothesis of sustainable degrowth as one solution to the dual economic and ecological crises. Yorgos is the author of the books Limits and the Case for Degrowth. His research is motivated by a quest to cross conceptual divides between the social and the natural domains with a particular focus on the political economic roots of environmental degradation and its uneven distribution along lines of power, income, and class. Yorgos, welcome and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Could you first begin by uh, sharing a bit with us about how your interest in these issues first began or what were some of the experiences that motivated you to become an academic and ecological economist and go down this career path? As a young person, as a teenager, I didn't really know what I want to do. But in Greece, where I was studying, if you are male and you're a good student and you are not good enough to become a medical doctor, <laughs> you are supposed to become an engineer or a scientist. And Hopefully things have improved a little bit, but still this kind of gendered expectations, unfortunately, are prevalent and we have to change them. We have to change them not only for, for women, but also for men like myself, that I ended up studying chemistry and I didn't really like it. I don't know why I studied, but I studied because I had to study science, because I was a good student, as I said. I did that at Imperial College. And then as I was finishing my degree, I realized that uh, something that was motivating me personally, and it had to do also with the background of my family. Uh, my mother was uh, one of the founding members of the Green Parties, and, and there was always a discussion about the environment, environmental problems, home. So when I was finishing chemistry, I said, okay, how can I make a transition to something that feels closer to heart? And I started studying uh, environmental uh, engineering first, and then gradually I moved to environmental policy. Uh, for my PhD, I did a PhD on environmental policy and planning, and this is where I felt that I came across the School of uh, Ecological Economics, uh, which, unlike what the name sounds, is not really economics, economics. It's more like an interdisciplinary approach into understanding the economy as a flow of materials and energy and resources. And uh, I found out that this is my intellectual home, the place where what I read excites me the most and the place where I felt I wanted to contribute with my own thought. Yes, and so a lot of your work goes beyond these kind of divisions between fields. Could you share a bit about the importance of that in your approach or in your work, the importance and the value of working in that cross-disciplinary way? Yes, in ecological economics is an interdisciplinary field uh, from the very beginning. It was, it was a groups of uh, physicists, ecologists, 
that came together with economists who were dissatisfied with the way their science was dealing with environmental issues, treating them just as an externality, something that it's outside the market and has to come into it. Economists who thought that we need to understand the, the economy as an ecosystem and understand how the economy is part of the broader Earth ecosystem, together with ecologists that felt and physicists that felt, yes, that their tools can be useful also in understanding the economy and in understanding, of course, uh, the problems of, that the economy is causing on the natural environment. So to understand these big issues of climate change and what we have to do about it, not understand just the planetary dynamics of climate change, but understand also climate mitigation and climate adaptation, to understand issues like the ones I worked at the beginning, which had to do around the droughts, water conflicts, and improving water management and uh, sustainable sustainable management of cities. To understand all these complex processes, uh, it's very difficult to understand them just from one disciplinary perspective. So if you're just an economist, you know, you're just going to look for markets and externalities and mainstream economists. If you're a sociologist, you're just going to study things with the tools and concepts of your discipline. But to understand these problems in a complete way, you have to bring these different disciplines and ways of seeing together. Now, there are people like myself that is not that we were trained in one discipline and then we came together with other people of other disciplines, but that our very training was a little bit outside of this uh, disciplined uh, type of trainings. As I said, I studied chemistry engineering, then I did policy and planning. Then I went to Berkeley for a postdoc and I started a little bit of geography and Marxist thinking. Uh, and then I did also a master's degree in economics after I became a professor. So I, I know a little bit of different things. That's why I call myself, and together with other people, we have started calling ourselves as doing undisciplinary research, which means that we refuse to be bounded within one discipline. And we think also that in order to do research, we have to think out of the box what is supposed for a researcher to do. So I like in my current work to venture from working with people who do models to just writing plain a humanities text or uh, criticizing a movie that captures a core idea with which I am engaging, like limits recently. So I like to do things and follow my heart in what I'm doing rather than follow some kind of disciplined uh, training. I have to say that I'm privileged to do that because I have a professorship that it's uh, uh, without strings attached here in Catalonia other than being very good and publishing a lot, which is a kind of strength. But at least it's not a string attached about what I should be doing. So I have taken advantage of that and I'm following big questions that I find important rather than uh, questions that the particular discipline thinks its disciplines should be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. And so thinking about your research interests, of course, you've had very diverse set of different projects. But when it comes to your work on the relationship between societies and the environment and the dynamic between the two, could you tell us a bit about the early days of your work around degrowth? Uh, that focus, I mean, it was something that they built over, over the years. But as an ecological economist, you are trained to think about limits to growth. So the limits to growth debate of the 1970s is foundational also for the School of Ecological Economics. So I, I was trained in that, but I have to say that when my PhD thesis, I was studying urbanization and water management in the city of Athens. I'm Greek, and I was studying the city where I grew up because there, were, there was a drought there and there were a lot of conflicts around what should be done, whether the city should bring water from far away or instead uh, whether it should conserve water and try to reduce the demand of water in the city. 
And I had more of a technical background, so I was interested to see how the city could reduce demand. There were quite some good studies, and I contributed to them that showed that the city could uh, reduce the demand and not expand more with new dams, etc. That's a debate that is not only in Athens. As I found out in my research, it has played out, of course, uh, notoriously in California. You find it in Boston. You find it in big uh, developing world cities. You find it in London. It's it's a constant. It was a constant debate. And what I found there was that uh, while I was focused on the technicalities or the economic feasibility of reducing demand, but the big picture question was that uh, there was a growth machine or what people call growth elites in the city that they were pushing at all costs for urbanization, urban growth, economic growth, and they were willing to bring water to to irrigate, let's say, this growth, to fuel this growth, as some books have used this metaphor. So my focus kind of changed, and I saw there that uh, while we environmental scientists might be focusing on what can be done different, what are the technologies that can be done differently, how can we reduce consumption, how can we move to sustainable consumption or production, there is an elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is that the drumbeat of the current economies, capitalist economies where we live, is economic growth, and everything moves to this drumbeat, and the rest is like uh, side considerations. So I felt that unless we try to understand this dynamic of economic growth, what is it that drives it? How does it drive all other decisions? And how can we create alternatives and escape from this one-way road of economic growth? Uh, the rest of us like just proposing uh, patches here and there of water demand management or whatever else your field might be on the environment here and there uh, is missing the big picture. And I was lucky when I came to Barcelona for my first job as a permanent professor in 2008 to find a group that they were already thinking in this direction of degrowth. It was the first international conference in Paris 2008, the second one we organized it in Barcelona. So I surrounded myself with a great community of young scholars here in Barcelona and of international colleagues around the world, thinking along the same lines and from all sorts of different disciplinary angles, academic and non-academic. And so as you say, this elephant in the room, this focus on growth, in your book, you outline how this came to be. So the history of how economic growth came to be so hegemonic, how we got to that point. Could you maybe share a bit with us about your findings? Yes, uh, I haven't done original research. I'm following and I'm synthesizing the work of very interesting scholarship that has come uh, recently on this question on the history of growth. I'm thinking here of the work of Matthias Smelter on the history of growth manship on the OECD. A number of essays that uh, they will turn into a book on the history of growth by Gareth Dale. And of course, all their work on the history of the idea of development, for example, The Encountering Development by Arturo Escobar. That's a formative work for me and a fascinating book always to read and reread. And I'm trying to, to put the pieces together. And a lot of books that they have been published on the history of GDP. So what is important there is that, uh, of course, the discussion of a, an increase in produce or increase in people has been around for a while and has been uh, since capitalism, let's say, emerged or since Adam Smith started writing. But a lot of these uh, writings and these ideas or the government discussions were focused on increase of specific quantities and normally increase in a short to a long term, but not this idea of compound growth year after year and not this idea of uh, the growth of something uh, that is called the economy, a system, a unified system that we understand as the economy or the national economy. Uh, this idea of the national economy and the idea of this thing called the national economy having to grow at a compound rate, which means turning to infinity quite quite fast, is an idea that appears in the 1930s to 40s. 
it's it's the period where uh, we start talking about the economy because it's a period that we start measuring a thing called the economy with GDP. So it's the period that we construct something, as Timothy Mitchell uh, calls it, inventing this thing called the economy. And uh, the idea that this thing called the economy has to grow year after year appears in the context of the Great Depression, takes off uh, during the Second World War in the, in the context of the war competition between uh, and the Allies. And the Allies want to pump up the production of uh, the economy so as to, to pay for, uh, for the war. And it really takes off, uh, as Matthias Smeltzer shows in his book, in the 1950s, uh, in the context of the Cold War. And we have there a series of statements from the Soviet Union and back from the OECD and the Western nations, where they promise humongous and momentous rates of growth that they were unprecedented there. And they actually do achieve them. So it is also a period where materially, to a large extent, thanks to the reconstruction after the huge destruction that was the Second World War, but also fueled by the cheap oil coming grabbed, if you want, from the Middle East, makes possible this fast growth of the economy for at least 20 or 30 years. And it's in this particular period what uh, Matthias Feltzer calls growthmanship, politicians who appear and they promise growth and one tries to outgrow the other, becomes dominant. So it's a relatively new, I would say, idea. It comes from the 1950s. It's not as many people would think something that is inscribed on human nature or something that all civilizations aspire to. So you won't find previous civilizations being obsessed with their economies growing and much less growing year after year at the compound rate. Absolutely. It's so important to pinpoint that this came out in a specific time in history. And so thinking about alternatives to this growth-based development approach, can you share a bit with us about the key premise of degrowth and your understanding and your writing around it? The growth is a critique, is a critique to what I was saying, that this idea of uh, 2 or 3% growth every year, which means that the whole economy is going to double uh, in 24 years. So the whole economy, the global economy, with all it's crazy circulation right now, not only of value, of dollar value, of euro value, but also of material resources, energy, that this thing is going to double in 24 years. It's going to be four times bigger in 48 years and eight times bigger in 24 years more now, because that's what compound growth at 3% every year means. At 2% is a little bit slower, but still it's a doubling every 35 years, you know? So we're talking about an unprecedented increase that... Um, we know that it can't end well, and it's not it can't end well only because the planet is finite, as you'll hear from ecologists, but it can't end well because you can't be moving like the whole world around the necessities of the economy to keep doubling every 24 years. You can't be creating new demands, new, new products, new goods, new investment outlets. Compound growth is the deadliest of the deadly contradictions of capital, David Harvey political economist and geographer wrote. And uh, it's true that the necessity of the capitalist system to grow at that rate is uh, self-destructive. And it's self-destructive, of course, in important ways ecologically. Climate change is one example of that, biodiversity loss and uh, many other environmental problems. So one is the critique. is like that we have to stop thinking in terms of growth and we don't have to beautify growth by calling it green, inclusive. Growth is a problem. This idea of compound rating of growth is a problem. Now, what alternatives do you think? Given that we have economies, at least uh, in our part of the world, in high-income, higher-income parts of the world, that they are geared 
to either grow or enter recession and be unstable and collapse. I think we are forced as open-minded economists, ecological economists or interdisciplinary economists, to think of how do we manage systems that can land smoothly or that can have a prosperous way down as uh, ecologists, the uh, Dooms called it in the 1980s. So how do we manage the prosperous way down? How do we manage without growth, as Peter Victor, another ecological economist, put the question? And this is where the issue of alternatives come. In our recent book, The Case for the Growth, we outline a number of alternatives that can be useful there. Work sharing, universal care income, a change in the taxation system with very high wealth taxes and carbon taxes, but also dividends supporting lower income people. Other people talk and think about changes in the monetary system. There are many flowers that can flourish there once we start thinking about alternatives. I don't want to say that there is one alternative and degrowth signifies one alternative. What degrowth signifies is that we have to to liberate ourselves from uh, this ideology and one-way thinking of economic growth and then consider the alternatives. Right now, they are not considered. As you say, there are many different flowers that can grow out of this. And often on the podcast, we talk about the importance of political will to make policy changes. Can you maybe share your thoughts about the necessity for political will in order to implement degrowth policies? There is a necessity for collective action and the political will, I think, uh, reflects and follows a collective action in the best case of scenarios. But in the worst case of scenarios, you can have political elites that do not respond to the demands of the collective. But right now, I, I, I would have to admit that the, the collective will, the collective forms of organization for pushing forward this type of political changes is not there yet. It's something that has to be built. And I think it will be built slowly, but necessarily by the type of uh, situations in which we are pushing ourselves. The climate disaster, climate breakdown, and the economic breakdown that it's coming sooner or later. I mean, it is here, but it's going to become even more intense. So the question is like, what political solutions and experimentations and trial and errors are going to emerge uh, within this context? One clear uh, trajectory in front of us is the authoritarian solutions and trying to maintain benefits for the few, the few that continue to profit in the current situation and can continue to profit even after a climate disaster. And it's not just the profit, it's their power privileges to continue to control them even under uh, under conditions of general breakdown. The other option that I would like to think around is one that it goes around the concepts of commons, of the growth, of a prosperous way down, of prosperity without growth which is a collective will that translates into a political will that tries to create the infrastructures and the processes for maintaining well-being while output and resource use and energy use degrows to a level that is sustainable with planetary boundaries. So yes, the type of policies that we talked about, like policies that wouldn't put expansion first, but they would put uh, social well-being and ecological well-being first and then uh, adjust the economy to that. The political will is necessary, but I think first comes political organizing to create this will. Mm-hmm. Yes, the role of social movements as well. In your research, you also talk about like the different levels in terms of behavioral changes, institutional changes, using technology, and the dynamic between those in order for meaningful social change to happen. Could you share a bit with us about the dynamic between these different areas and, of course, other areas as well in terms of the process of actually making change happen? 
We talk about three levels of articulation. So we talk about changes at the personal level, changes at the communal level, and changes at the political level. But we emphasize the articulation of the three levels rather than to think the three levels as separately. So the personal level is each one of us developing the awareness that we have to live differently and start living differently. Living simply, as we say, so that others uh, in other parts of the world may simply live. Reducing our, uh, our consumption and production patterns in ways that they are uh, conducive to the limits of the planet. But you have to have the privilege to do that because if you live day in, day out, you don't have even the option to choose how you live or what you consume. You're pushed to work in a particular way. And then if you don't have the infrastructures and the general social support mechanisms to live differently, all this is just nice talk, no? So the second level is how do you organize at the community level with others uh, that they want also to live differently and understand that we have to change How do you organize to start creating these uh, parallel economies and parallel infrastructures of support? For example, how do you take care of your children collectively? How do you organize in cooperatives to bring food from nearby places rather than from the other side of the world? How do you develop forms of uh, mutual aid that they were very important now during the COVID crisis times, neighborhood uh, scale levels of association? Now, this again is not uh, sufficient in two ways. First of all, that not everything can be provided at the community level. So we need a higher state level where, for example, big energy infrastructure is uh, rolled out or a big public health system is supported. Uh, But also we need a political level of articulation because if the political system goes in a different direction, all these community initiatives or personal changes will just be suppressed or remain marginal, no? So the question is like how this personal collective change materializes into political change. And the model we see there of articulating that is uh, the hypothesis we make in our work is that as people uh, live day in and day out and perform in different types of economies, parallel to capitalist economies, alternative economies at the community level, uh, one way or the other, they will organize to protect these community economies and they will organize to see them generalized at the political level. So then the question is how these uh, grassroots movements that we see around cooperatives, cooperative economies, the commons, sharing economies, how it organizes differently in different places into a political force that makes something bigger out of these uh, different initiatives happening right now. In our book, we look at the case of the city of Barcelona as one possible example to think forward along this uh, dimension with all its limitations, of course. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, different forms of collective organizing and action in different locations. And there was this misunderstanding maybe by some people about degrowth, where you had to clarify that, to quote what you had written, you had written that degrowth implies charting alternatives to growth-based development in low-income countries. But this is not the same as saying that degrowth is the rise of incomes of poor people in low-income countries. So maybe you could speak to that that clarification in case, you know, maybe some listeners might benefit from hearing that in terms of how it's it's realized differently in high-income countries or low-income countries. I'm careful how I tread this, this line because I know also your audience is in development practice. And I have to say that I'm not, I'm not involved in that. I haven't lived in a developing world uh, country. It's not my experience, it's not my world, and it's not something that I like to profess about from far away because uh, I don't like the idea of the expert from the West that knows what, what Africa should do or what Latin America should do. I think we have to listen 
the ideas coming out of these places and see what we can learn because we have caused a lot of disasters already by pretending that we teach things there, but mostly securing that resources can keep flowing cheap here. Our, our argument as the growth is like we have to sort uh, our house and by our house, uh, I put air quotes, but our house, I mean Europe or North America, which is where those of us who write about the growth are based. We have to sort our house because this is where colonialism and extraction and extraction-based development, uh, funneling uh, resources unequally from the rest of the world started, you know. And it's our responsibility to start putting a mess to the mess we have created in terms of the climate breakdown and in terms of other problems. So well, that's that's one thing I have to say. The second thing I have to say is that um, by degrowth in high-income countries is the only way that we can have a social justice and environmental justice in the sense that if our part of the world keeps growing at 2 or 3% per year, I don't see any feasible scenario that doesn't involve climate breakdown. And we know very well uh, who's going to suffer uh, first and foremost from a climate breakdown. Not that our part of the world is not going to suffer, but parts of the world that have uh, less infrastructures to protect themselves and less economies that can protect from climate calamities are going to suffer even more. So the growth is, is a must uh, in this sense for development in the rest of the world. Now, what I can say about uh, parts of the world that I don't know and uh, where incomes are low, what I can say is that, yes, uh, material needs there remain to be met, energy needs remain to be met, and this will definitely mean an increase in the, might call it ecological footprint resources and energy, the infrastructures, better infrastructures for certain things, better energy provision, etc. So this is definitely part of uh, what development will look like. But I don't want to use the word growth and couch this development in terms of GDP because this would defeat the very purpose of what we are saying, that this whole model and ideology of GDP growth here is wrong. So if it has been wrong here, why would we now uh, keep it and export it and keep using it uh, when we talk about other places of the world? What I would like to see is more room for people that speak in their language, and I mean in their language, uh, language, language, but I mean also in their own intellectual language in other parts of the world. They also speak about alternatives to capitalist uh, mode of growth and development. And there are autochthonous alternatives uh, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, in Southeast Asia, that I would like to see space for them. I would like to see space also in development thinking, practice, for these autochthonous alternatives uh, of different forms and different paths to well-being than one that assumes that our model of industrialization, of GDP-based growth, is the one that should be exported and that there are, air quotes again, obstacles in other parts of the world. Absolutely. I think that will resonate so much with our listeners as well. And so you mentioned the climate crisis and maybe the prevalence of kind of short-sighted thinking or short-term solutions, short-term policy visions versus the need for more meaningful systemic long-term change. Can you speak to us about your understanding between these kind of two different visions, especially related to the climate crisis that we're in globally? I think the current epidemic crisis, COVID, like I think as a metaphor, not as an example, but as a metaphor, can very well show this distinction between the short-term and the long-term thinking. So the short-term thinking was that there was a trade-off between putting people first and putting the economy, no? So should we have a lockdown and save people and lives? Or are we damaging people in the long-term, supposedly, by locking down the economy and then having an economic and, and secondary health uh, crisis that they're going to impact later? So there was a supposed trade-off between the, the economy and people. And that's how also the climate debate has been framed 
ever since the 1980s. No? So the uh, so-called Nobel Prize in economics, which is not really a Nobel Prize, but anyways, William Nordhaus that, that got the Nobel, he was famous for a paper he had written in the 80s, which was to slow or not to slow, you know. He was basically saying, should we slow the economy to save the climate or should we let the economy go because there are trade-offs and if we let the economy slow down, there's going to be bigger impacts on climate, etc. That's how it has been framed. And that was how COVID was uh, framed. And within one year, we know that it was a completely the wrong framing because the the countries that acted fast and imposed the strict and decisive lockdowns when they could have done it uh, also did better economically. So they didn't have to go through a series of disasters, a, th- a series of opening the economy and closing it down again. And more or less, they managed to have a um, healthy functioning of the economy much faster than the rest who supposedly put the economy first and they tried to water down the lockdowns so that there can be some economic activity. It happened within a year, so we've, we lived it and we've seen it. And I think it would be good to take the lesson for climate change uh, and the big picture, which is playing out in more years. The faster and the more decisive we act to slow down the parts of the economy that they are causing climate change, the better it will be also for whatever we might be calling the economy in the long run. There is no trade-off there between slowing down the economy and uh, climate change. There is no trade-off whatsoever. We have to really slow down the economy now so that there can continue to be an economy 50 or 70 years after. Otherwise, there will not be nothing. There will be like a series of small disasters and some, some economic life here and there, you know. Yeah, very important. So since you published Degrowth, you've shared your writing and your thoughts about it. What have been the reactions you've gotten from colleagues or others around the world in terms of maybe how it's being translated into action and what it's leading to in terms of actually being implemented? The idea has been around for a while. So, I mean, I'm not the first one to publish. I published my first book on Degrowth in 2018, and now I have the new one, which is a shorter version and a little bit more um, manifesto-ish or manifesto-ish, like the case for Degrowth. And the bigger textbook kind of book that I wrote, Degrowth, was in 2018. When I came in Barcelona in 2008, there was already a grassroots movement on Degrowth here in Barcelona of Catalan activists. So the, the discussion has been going on for a while. What I see now is an increasing interest within the Anglo-speaking wo- world where was, the debate was not so strong. It was more strong in the Mediterranean Europe, in France, where it all started. Serge Latouche is the name to look for there. He wrote uh, extensively about the growth in the early 2000s. Many books in France, unfortunately not translated, but excellent books. And for your audience, interestingly, Serge Latouche was a development practitioner, so his first job was as a development advisor of the French government working in Africa in development programs. And he got disillusioned by what, by what he observed there. Uh, he became an anthropologist, studying development critically, becoming part of the post-development school, uh, working in Africa and Southeast Asia, and then coming back home in Europe. He tied uh, his critique to development with the ecological debates around limits to growth, and he was the first one to write about what we call today the growth, the croissants in France. So that's interesting to show that there is a link between uh, what concerns your audience here and what I'm writing about. The reception has been a lot of intense debates from people who do not want to accept that. They say that it's impossible to think anything that doesn't involve a rise of incomes for everyone. Uh, that people in the global north uh, will not accept any reduction in their incomes given how 
how much they have suffered from ingestion the last years, which is true. And we are not calling for thinking about how to reduce incomes, but actually how to do without growth, which is uh, where we put the challenge. So there has been a lot of debates, which I think is part of what we're doing. And there's been a lot of opening up of grassroots alternatives, people in cities or grassroots commoners who are attracted to the idea of the growth and they find it interesting. Young people in uh, green parties, that they are more and more mobilized around the idea of the growth. So I think the discourse, and I'm not talking about my books now, no? My books are like, let's say, the formalization of that at an academic level. But I think the ideas are there and they are spreading. And uh, they are becoming part of the common sense of many people. Thinking about one of the manifestations of kind of the violence of our current global economic systems is the conflicts over resource use. And, you know, from the more development sector perspective, this often leads to humanitarian emergencies. And, you know, it has such a violent impact on different communities. Could you speak to this reality in terms of conflicts over resource use for decades now and how that's something that also is relevant when thinking about rethinking how we approach our economies? I coordinated uh, actually a big European project, which was precisely on climate change and water conflict in the MENA region, in the Middle East and uh, the Mediterranean region. What you find there is that I think there is a kind of reductionistic, deterministic discourse which says like, oh, we're going to have climate change, this is going to cause uh, droughts and water scarcity, and then people are going to get into conflict. And uh, what our research showed is that this is like too much of a simplistic picture. First of all, we know that very often when there is water scarcity, you, depending on the institutional and social conditions, you might end up with more water cooperation rather than more water conflict. Then in many cases, it's the opposite way. It's that water conflict is, is what is causing water scarcity with uh, powerful actors enclosing water and keeping uh, weaker actors out of it and constructing a condition of scarcity. And then we also found out that uh, it's really difficult to disentangle the environmental or climate factors sometimes from the social or economic factors that increase vulnerability or they lead to conflict in their own ways. And that sometimes... Uh, Arguments about climate can be used to displace attention from the political and social factors that they are truly causing conflict. And actually, there are also factors where we can intervene immediately. For example, one issue, one issue we had the problem with in our research program, we argued it's very important to look at, is that there is a whole securitization of the discourse around the environmental conflict. You know? And there is a lot of discourse. We have to think of climate change as a national security issue that invokes images of militaries, of hardening borders. This is precisely what we have to avoid if we think of climate change. Uh, we need to think about solidarities. We need to think about uh, mutual aid across borders. Uh, so we were saying that the much better way of thinking around these issues, rather than national security or the development studies alternative, which is human security, which has also a very individualistic kind of decentralizing uh, responsibility to people and communities themselves, we, we try to articulate uh, a discourse around the old but still valid uh, notions of social security and civil security, collective forms of security, collective forms of providing infrastructure that provides, that protects from climate change, that supports people in case of calamities, that supports people with a low cost at case of health calamities like the one we are living right now, 
So we think the emphasis on this discourse, rather than being on climate change as a source of conflict uh, and disaster, should be on how do we build the social and civil security infrastructures that we need for an age of climate and health breakdown that it's within our doors, rather than uh, beat the drums of war in the name of climate change. And kind of in relation to that, you know, sometimes we see greenwashing or this co-opting of the language used in terms of sustainable development. Can you maybe share your thoughts about this co-option of these words, but without a proper understanding of the, the ideas and the analysis and the systemic issues at play? It's an intentional uh, misuse, you know. Now the, the new term now is... Uh net zero emissions. So, you know, you hear everyone is building airports and they say it's net zero emissions. Fossil fuels are saying we're going to keep extracting oil and coal, but it's going to be net zero emissions. I don't know what's this new craziness, you know, it's some craziness that started a little bit from the reports of the IPCC that saying like, you know, we might stay within 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. If somehow in the next 20 years, we start developing these technologies that they still don't exist and we don't know how much land they're going to occupy. Some people say three times the the size of India, to start uh, absorbing carbon from, uh, from the atmosphere with trees and with other projects that they all remain a fantasy right now. I mean, it's good to study them as researchers and as engineers, no? but there's nothing concrete there. And people have already now started talking about net zero carbon emissions, that somehow they're going to keep emitting, but somehow they're going to do something with this carbon, I don't know, with trees or storing it under the ground, with technologies that they are not there. So that's one example of what you call greenwashing, and uh, but I don't think it's just a matter of ignorance. No? It's a matter of like, how can we keep doing what we are doing and pretend that we are not doing it anymore? Sustainable development, I mean, had a more promising story in the sense that it brought many people together. There were progressive movements and people that put their bets there. It was another era, it was the 1990s. We still thought we could stop things. It was 30 years before now, you know, so there was time still to stop carbon emissions and stop biodiversity loss. So there was some hope big actors could be put on the table and convinced to do otherwise. The lesson is that they are not, you know, they were there just to find new fancy terms and keep doing what they're doing and call it sustainable. And there is a series of terms after that that keep doing the same, you know, and then we hear about circularity. Uh, th these are not bad ideas. I mean, sustainability is a good idea, you know, the circular economy is also a good idea taken up to a limit, you know, and seen, seen within its limits. The problem is not the idea. The problem is that they're used as a silver bullet, as panakias, then everyone agrees on them, so everyone is on board, and then nothing happens. This is where the problem is. Yeah, all these buzzwords and that distinction about it's intentionally used in this way, it's so important to make, so thank you for that. Thinking about the interplay between academic institutions, with development agencies, with governments, with community organizations, kind of the knowledge mobilization what have been your experience around the partnerships or the exchanges? Yeah, I mean, what we've done here in Barcelona, it's because our message is quite radical. No? So the growth is not something you can easily work out with the ministry, let's say. But we have worked a lot with civil society organizations, a lot of uh, groups that they are involved in actual extractive conflicts around the world. There is the environmental justice map. If you haven't checked it, check it out. It's a map our group in Barcelona has prepared under John Martinez Allier and his colleagues that uh, looks at, uh, has put different civil society organizations reporting on the conflicts against the extractive economy that they are involved around the world. We have worked with uh, cooperatives, with NGOs here in Barcelona, sharing our knowledge. 
And we have tried uh, this knowledge, the building from the grassroots, to slowly make openings also in the policy sphere. And uh, Green Parties has, have been our allies there. We've worked closely with the European Green Party, which held a big conference in Brussels in the European Parliament, the post-growth conference, the first conference in the premises of the Parliament, with involvement of uh, ministers of nation states uh, in Europe, uh, involvement of commission officers, the executive, let's say, of the European Union, discussing what post-growth economies might mean. So we make these small openings in the political sphere, and then we, we make a lot of small openings in one-on-one relationships. So there are many policymakers that come to us from big international organizations and governments, and they tell us that, you know what, I'm desperate too. I can see that it's not going anywhere, and I really am attracted to the ideas you talk about. How do I make though these ideas palatable to my colleagues and to my to my environment, to my context. And we work with people slowly but steadily to create the spaces for these conversations to take place within bigger organizations. That's great. Very important in terms of being in conversation and having these important exchanges, thinking about the importance of international solidarities and this collective work to work collectively to kind of build new economies of care, relationships of care, moving away from the practices of exploitation, the systems of exploitation that have dominated. Could you maybe share your thoughts on the importance of these international solidarities and working together across borders, internationally, globally? Yeah, I think it's impossible for any country or any city or any town to break from the mold of the current capitalist system on its own, no? So it's not a change that can start from a single country or a single city. It has to be something that works in concerted action among uh, regions or among more than one or group of countries as they are trying to adapt to a new normal, as it is being called now, which is that the old normal has died, and we try to see what is going to be the new conditions that are, uh, arrive. And in that sense, it's really important to keep maintaining the international perspective and international solidarities rather than closing down on borders, which is impossible in an era of climate era to think closing down on your own border. The work on Environmental Justice Atlas, which is a collaboration with uh, movements uh, and groups of people involved in conflicts against extractive industries around the world. It is um, a tangible um, process of solidarity, knowledge of solidarity, of making visible the different struggles that are taking place around the world, and then also trying to weave the connections that conflict against a particular mining corporation in Latin America, that there is a very similar conflict in Indonesia, for example. And there are connections to be made there between the people involved in these conflicts. And there are also knowledges to be exchanged and uh, mutual support to be built in trying to create also alternatives to the development, again, air quotes, offered by these corporations in these specific localities. Yes. If you think about, you know, those who would be listening in terms of the audience of practitioners rather than researchers, is there anything you'd like to share in terms of inviting them to think more about degrowth, how they can really reflect on, come to understand, use and contribute to this degrowth movement? I know that the contexts are very harsh and hard in the places where they work, and I really have a respect for people uh, who go out of their comfort zone and are really motivated to help people in other parts of the world and go there to, to help with their, with their knowledge and with to share their knowledge and put also in many instances their, their bodies and their selves in danger. So I have a lot of respect for people 
who are involved in development practice, I would say, and I think most of them know that I'm not saying anything new, but to be open to to the alternatives that might emerge from the local level, from the level of observation. And for me, as someone working on the growth, it's like I want to hear back from them. I want to hear from people involved in development practice to tell me how what we're talking about the growth, how does it speak to their own contexts and what alternatives to development do they observe or do they think could be fertilized and could flourish in the places where they work. Uh, there is a big job to be done to continue the work of the post-development schools about thinking alternatives to development around the world. There is a work done now by Asis Kotari around the idea of pluriverse to think about or the pluriverse of alternatives that exist around the world. And I think development practitioners can be both uh, conveyors of what is this pluriverse and where it's taking place to visibilize it and to value it, and uh, also to be people who, who contribute to the discourse and make us aware of how we can make this translation between what we're talking about, the growth, at a more academic and a little bit more Western context, how it can translate to the different contexts they operate in. Yeah, so a big invitation to the listeners to maybe get in touch with you or share their thoughts. And just as a final question, where are you in terms of your research focus, your interests, where you're putting your focus and your time and your energy right now and the work you're doing currently? As I said, I'm on disciplinary, so I have many different passions. So I work with my students to think a little bit about what a Green New Deal could mean without growth. We try to model uh, different paths of carbon emissions without uh, assuming growth uh, as a desirable and given situation. Uh, I work on a longer book on trying to think critically around the idea of eco-modernism, the idea that the salvation, the current ecological breakdown is in technology. So yeah, these are some of the variable things I'm working on. Very interesting. So, you know, it's been wonderful to speak with you. I really appreciate your reflections and your time. Thank you. No, I think we had a very nice conversation and uh, we finished it on a good note. (laughs) Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the podcast. I invite you to join in on the conversation by going to our website, hitting the send us a voice message button and sharing some of your thoughts with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast player, rate and review past episodes, and share our conversations with your friends. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.